Today we're going to be focusing on the last portion of that section there, on the return of Jesus. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, and uh, this is just to establish the reality of Christ's return. You know, how do we know Jesus is coming back? Uh, we're going to begin in Acts 1, beginning in verse 8. This is, of course, Jesus speaking to his apostles before he ascends. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that tells us numerous things. First of all, of course, yes, Jesus is returning. Uh, the angel says there that he's going to return in the same way that he left. Okay, so that means he's going to return physically in a physical body. This is one reason, by the way, that we believe uh, Jesus continues to be a physical being, right? So it's not just that he had a physical body while on earth and then he kind of became a, a spirit uh, as he ascended to heaven. No, he ascended bodily and he's going to return bodily. And so uh, this tells us quite a bit about the nature of Christ's uh, physical body. He'll return physically. He'll, he'll descend back into, uh, into earth again. And then for those who, and this is not, of course, the only place this is taught. Scripture repeatedly teaches us that Jesus will come again to earth. Uh, for those who scoff at the idea of Jesus coming back, Peter even predicted that. So 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3, says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter says there's going to be some people coming uh, who scoff at the notion that Jesus is going to return again. Verse uh, 9, he gives the, the explanation, the reason why Jesus has not returned. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so Jesus is coming again. He will fulfill his promise, uh, but he is patiently waiting for people to repent. Uh, now, the nature of the turn of Christ, of course, is going to be uh, radically different than uh, his initial coming to earth in the incarnation. Uh, Jesus came the first time as a baby in Bethlehem. He comes a second time as the king in Jerusalem. Uh, he came the first time in a lowly and insignificant town. He comes the second time in power and glory. He was rejected the first time, and he will be accepted the second time. When Jesus returns, uh, the first time he, <clears throat> he comes and is killed. He's rejected by, uh, by those that he came to save. And the second time he comes, he will take his seat on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over the world. That is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, now, on the timing of Jesus' return, of course, nobody knows. Some have tried to make uh, predictions in the past. Uh, some of these people, you ever heard of Harold Camping, maybe? Uh, he's been, for years, he's been making predictions about when Jesus is going to come back. Uh, about every 20 years, he says he's going to come back again. And, of course, it never happens. And so uh, we, we have this tendency to assume that the return of Jesus is going to be in our lifetime. Uh, and that's been something that's happened, actually, for a long time. Christians have just always kind of had that thought. Well, of course, he's going to come back in the next 20, 50 years. Uh, and yet, here we are 2,000 years later, and... He still hasn't come. Uh, and so, uh, frankly, I, I, as I understand the events leading up to the return of Jesus, 
Um, it seems to me that we are really nowhere near it. I'll show some of that later as we get into this more. But as we talked about last Sunday, before Jesus leaves the throne, uh, all of his enemies are put under his feet. He's ruling over the world. It seems to me like that's a long ways in our future. Uh, before Jesus returns, the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. And so this idea that Jesus is coming uh, any day now, could be tomorrow, uh, I, I want to push back against that a little bit. Uh, this week, I, I saw someone post on social media something that I see regularly. He said something to the effect of, Jesus is coming soon. Uh, the signs and prophecies, they're all lining up around us. It could be any day now. I see that sort of thing regularly. And uh, normally I, I don't comment, but I knew I was going to be teaching this uh, today, so I decided to just reply and see what he said. I asked him, what, what prophecies? Uh, what signs have been fulfilled? You know, can you point to anything in the last 50 years, say, uh, that, that has been fulfilled prophecy? And he responded by saying, Trump uh, moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not an expert on biblical prophecy, but I've never read anywhere in the Bible where it says anything about uh, the president moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And so I asked him, where is that in the Bible? And he sent me this long article with zero scripture in it. Uh, and so we all just have this, this is the way that people tend to view uh, prophecy. Anytime something happens in Israel, anything, there's big news in the Middle East, a lot of Christians kind of get all crazy. Oh, the end times, something's happening. Well, okay. Unless it's a clear, specific fulfillment of a prophecy, stuff happens in the Middle East all the time. Um, so we shouldn't be looking at the news and just sort of drawing conclusions that that necessarily means something. Um, I decided to do a little experiment after that interaction. I went on my, uh, my Twitter page and I posted out a statement that said, no prophecies have been fulfilled in the last 50 years. Change my mind. Uh, and I, have, I probably have a thousand pastors that follow me on Twitter. So they, I tend to get interactions on this type of thing when I post out a controversial uh, statement like that. And I did. I got some interactions. Only one person even tried to point to a specific text in the Bible. Uh, and it was in Daniel 12 about people's knowledge being increased. Uh, and he said, you know, in our day, I think it was, if you're writing that down, I think it's Daniel 12:4. I believe is the reference. Uh, people will be tra traveling to and fro and the knowledge of many will be increased. Something like that. Sort of a vague statement. And he, he tried to say the internet was the fulfillment of that. Uh, okay, maybe. But uh, what I said to him was, well, you could say that 500 years ago when the printing press was invented. Um, knowledge increased drastically. You could say that 100 years ago, the invention of the telephone or the telegram or whatever. Uh, in other words, it's not like that's a specific thing that's happened just in the last few years. It's been a, a trajectory for a long time. Um, so I, I don't count that as really a specific prophecy being fulfilled. Uh, other than that, nobody brought up anything uh, because I really don't think we can point to anything in Scripture and say that this has been fulfilled in our lifetime. Uh, maybe the only thing that would come close would be 1948, uh, when Israel came together as a nation. Some have suggested, and I think there, this may be true, uh, that it's a, a fulfillment of some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel returning back to their land. Uh, that's feasible, but that was 70 plus years ago. <laughs> um, so that doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is coming tomorrow just because that happened. You know, it's been quite a while since that took place. Um, so I say all of that for several reasons. First of all, uh, don't spread panic. Uh, we have no reason to think that we're living necessarily in the last days. Again, I think there's really zero evidence, uh, concrete evidence of that. Um, I think there's actually some significant reasons to think that we are not. Uh, second, don't repeat things you haven't checked out yourself. This is so common in uh, end times discussions where people are taught things and because preacher so-and-so said this, 
uh, because they read some commentary on Revelation, whatever. Uh, they just assume that, that that guy knew what he was talking about. He had everything figured out, and so we just kind of repeat those things. Um, but we, at the end of the day, I, I think we're all going to be a little bit surprised at how everything works out. I don't think anybody has all the end time stuff figured out perfectly. Uh, that tends to be the case with prophecy. Um, books like Ezekiel and Revelation are very difficult to interpret. I don't know if you ever tried to read those and make sense of them. It's it's tricky. Um, so don't don't say stuff about uh, you know signs of the end times taking place unless you can actually point to a specific place in the Bible and say this is the prophecy and it took place. Uh, unless you can do that, I'd like to kind of calm down that type of rhetoric. Um, if you want my opinion on this, and again, this really is all. All it is is my opinion. I can't say concretely any of this, but I think we've got, my, my guess would be at least centuries before Jesus comes back, maybe even thousands of years. Uh, and I can point to specific verses in Scripture for why I believe that to be the case. It's not because of some book or movie uh, that I watched. Um, before we get to that, though, one of the difficult interpretive issues relating to all of this is something we're going to talk about more when we get to the end time section in our statement of faith, because we do have that coming up um, later on. But I just want to introduce this issue now. Um, in, in the New Testament, there seem to be two comings of Jesus that are spoken about. You have, first of all, his return in judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay? And then you have the other one, which we would call the second coming. That's where he literally comes and sets foot on the earth. Okay? Um, those are two separate events. And, of course, the second coming is in our future. Uh, that other coming, if you want to call it that, would be AD 70. So that's after the New Testament, but way in our past, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. And there are some texts in the Bible that are hotly debated, whether it's talking about events in the past or events in our future, or both. A great example of this would be Matthew 24. Uh, we're going to be, begin reading in verse 1. And this is where Jesus, he's in Jerusalem. And it says there, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point, to him, uh, point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. So that's a pretty straightforward prophecy of Jesus. Uh, the temple that they were looking at is going to be destroyed. Okay, and, and again, we'll get to that more later, but that did take place in AD 70, about 40 years uh, after Jesus said these words. The temple was destroyed. Uh, verse 3, As he sat in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so when is this going to happen? What signs will accompany your coming and the end of the age? So now we're kind of talking about what we would call end time stuff. Jesus returning, the end of the age. Verse 4, here's his answer. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place but the end is not yet. So the end, Christ's return, comes after this. A nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased... The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so all of those things 
take place before the end of the age, before Jesus returns. Okay, so the question then is, has any of this happened? If, we, if we're saying Jesus could come back tomorrow, okay, well, not unless all of these other things have happened, because he says these things happen before the end, before my return. All right, so has there been a radical increase in famines, earthquakes, and wars? Uh, have, have Christians been killed and hated by all nations? Has the gospel been preached throughout the whole world to all nations? Uh, I don't see any of that has, having taken place yet. Uh, Jesus says all of that will happen before the end, before he returns. So could Jesus come back today? I, I don't think so. Not if all of that has to happen first and none of it has happened. Uh, but we've, got, we've gotten so caught up in America with this idea, Jesus is coming back soon, it could be today, and it's like considered heresy to just question that statement. Uh, could he really come today? Is, is that what Scripture tends to uh, point us to? And again, I think biblically we really can't say that. If you keep reading Matthew 24, Jesus goes back to talking uh, not about his return at the end of the age, but about the judgment that's coming against Jerusalem. He kind of This is, again, one of the things that's difficult to interpret. Is he goes back and forth in the same text, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming soon uh, versus the end of the age and his, his return. Verse 34, for example, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay, so verses 15 to 34 seems to me is what he's talking about there. Um, and all of that, he says, is going to take place within that generation that he's speaking to. Okay, so that part has already been fulfilled. Again, the temple was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem were killed uh, when the Romans attacked the city. But then the question has to be, what about the rest of Matthew 24? Did all of that happen already? Uh, is some of that in our future and some of it back in the first century? Uh, these are very difficult things to sort out because Jesus seems to go back and forth between talking about end-of-the-age stuff and stuff that was very soon to take place in the lifetime of the apostles. And this really fits the pattern of prophecy throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and a great example of this you might be familiar with is Jesus in Nazareth uh, in, in the book of Luke. I, I can't remember the chapter offhand. He's reading from Isaiah that famous text about uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel and uh, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops mid-sentence. If you keep reading Isaiah 61 uh, verse 2, Jesus literally stops right in the middle of the verse. Because what the verse says is, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. Okay, so the way we understand that is he comes the first time proclaiming the year of God's favor, and the next time he comes proclaiming vengeance. Uh, so, but, but my point in bringing that up is, uh, no Jew reading Isaiah 61 would have thought that. No Jew reading that would have thought, oh, these are two separate comings. I mean, it's literally the same sentence. I'm going to come and do this. And so uh, this sort of pattern of, of weaving together prophecies that take place at different times is actually consistent throughout Scripture. And we see that in Matthew, we see that in Luke 21, we see that also, I believe, in the book of Revelation. Uh, some of those things, and I mean, Revelation says this, right? I'm going to show you the things that are uh, in the past, in the present, and in the future, he says in chapter 1. Things that are soon to come to pass, and then there's some that are new heaven and new earth, you know, way in our future. And so that's kind of weaved together there. And what's tricky is sorting out uh, what's already been fulfilled, what's still going to be fulfilled. And uh, again, I don't think anybody has all of that worked out perfectly. Um, so in all of our speculation about end times prophecies and Jesus' return, and, and speculation is exactly what most of it is, uh, we need to have a degree of uncertainty, meaning we really can't be dogmatic 
about how prophecy is going to take place, the order of events, the time frames, all of that. So with all of that said, if we can't be confident about uh, certain details like that, what can we say for certain? And this is where I want to go now is, uh, you know, we know Jesus is coming again. Okay, that's, that's a promise from Scripture. Uh, we, don't all, we don't necessarily know when he's coming. We don't know uh, all of the details, all of the order of events, but we know that he's coming back again. What can we say with certainty about Jesus' return? Number one, when Jesus comes, he will judge all people. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And so this is, again, clearly second coming, right? This is not judgment against Jerusalem. This is him coming and sitting on the throne. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. I'm sorry, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? Uh, when did we see you sick or, or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, on his left hand, uh, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked, sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to the, uh, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, uh, a lot packed in those verses. The one clear point, when Jesus returns, there will be a judgment. Okay, people will be separated. And notice the criteria of this judgment. Okay, who is allowed into the kingdom and who is sentenced to eternal punishment? doesn't say the people who prayed the sinner's prayer go on this side, or the people who went to church go on this side, uh, or the people who believed the gospel went on this side. It is a judgment based upon works. Okay, it is a judgment based upon, did you do these things or did you do these things? Did you minister to those in need or did you not? Uh, and if that seems wrong, it is reiterated many other places in Scripture. Here's another one, John 5. Uh, Jesus, again, is speaking of that day when he comes back to earth, and all of those who have died are, are raised again, and they face him in judgment. Verse 22, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Okay, so hearing and believing the gospel is a part of the equation. You see it there. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, so do our works play a role in entering the kingdom of God as opposed to being sentenced to hell? Yes. The answer has to be yes. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we will be judged based upon how we lived. Okay, so when Jesus returns, we know he's going to resurrect the dead, and everyone living and dead will then stand before him and be judged according to their works. How we live our lives is the evidence of whether or not we are a Christian. Uh, this is the con consistent teaching throughout the New Testament. If you're a Christian who doesn't live like it, uh, you're the kind of Christian who goes to hell. In other words, you're not a Christian. Uh, if genuine faith is there, it will result in a transformation that gives proof of the power of the gospel at work in your life. Okay, uh, next, when Jesus returns, he will rule over all nations. Uh, we got kind of an indication of that in Matthew 25, what we read, right? When he comes, he's going to sit on his glorious throne. Uh, but Revelation 11:15, the seventh angel uh, blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, by the way, let me just destroy another common uh, misunderstanding of Christianity. We don't end up in heaven forever. Okay, God makes a new heaven and a new earth. We are here on earth. Uh, it is a renewed world. The, the, the uh, curse of sin is gone. But the kingdom of our world, of this earth, will become the kingdom of God, and he'll reign here forever and ever. Uh, Jesus will rule in perfect justice all over the world. We're not disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. Uh, we will be living in physical bodies on the earth forever. Now, it is true to say if you die today, of course, you go to heaven. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Christians who die today do go to be with their Lord. But when Jesus comes, we come with him and we inherit the world. That's why Jesus says, right, uh, blessed are, uh, I forget the beatitude, but they shall inherit the earth. Um, it's not that we go to heaven forever. Jesus comes to earth. And that really uh, gets to kind of the last point I wanted to make about the return of Christ. When Jesus returns, that is the consummation of God's redemptive plan. At that point, death will be defeated. There will be no more curse. A sin will be eradicated. And Jesus will be ruling over all the earth. Everyone will be in subjection to him. So things will be finally the way they were supposed to be originally. Uh, God and, and humans living together without, without the sin that ruined everything back in Genesis 3. Um, and so the return of Jesus is something that we as his followers should long for. Titus 2 verse 11, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, to wrap up, I'm going to try to save time for questions at the end here because I know I covered a lot of stuff. Um, but I want to show a couple of Bible Project videos. I haven't done these in a while, but these I think are very helpful at uh, sort of showing us the kingdom of God and what God is doing in redemption, not just to save us from our sins, but to save our world, uh, to redeem the earth from the sin curse back in Genesis 3. So let's watch a couple of these. <laughs> 
So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. 
And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. 
but not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So, God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So, how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So, we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so, what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple, he's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So, in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. All right, questions? We covered up, we have one minute. (laughs) Uh, But any questions? Does that, does that help at all, or does that just confuse things? Okay. The main, main things that I, I wanted to drive home with that, first of all, is God is not done with the earth. The, the end plan is not we go to heaven. 
We do go to heaven if we die today, but that's a temporary thing. Uh, we, we end up here on earth. God is fixing our messed up and broken world. Um, so it, it's not like God just kind of nukes the planet and is done with, done with us here and takes us up to be with him. Uh, no, the end goal is Jesus ruling over a redeemed earth that is freed from the curse of sin, and uh, everything is basically restored. I mean, honestly, one of the most important things to understand in Scripture is the first three pages, right? Genesis 1 to 3, that God creates this perfect, beautiful world. We mess it up. The rest of the Bible is fixing that. It is getting us back to um, a renewed creation in which humans and God can dwell together on an earth that isn't cursed by sin. Yes? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, yes, I think statements about Jesus ruling forever and ever over the earth um, seem to imply that, yeah, that was a one-time thing. So, good question, though. That, that gets into a lot of what people ask a lot of times, things like, uh, could there be other earths with other people where this has happened <laughs> similarly? Right. Right, it's like the Matrix or something. No, I, I don't think so. So, any other questions? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. One of the one of the issues I had, I always had as a kid growing up, hearing "I'm going to go to be with Jesus in heaven forever," is that just meant nothing to me. I don't know heaven. I don't know what that's like. Um, but saying, you know, I'm going to live on earth in a perfect world without sin, without sickness, without problems. Oh, that sounds great. You know, the idea of floating on a cloud with a harp just didn't appeal to me. <laughs> um, but having that Garden of Eden ideal restored uh, really is a, a great, kind of a bright future to look forward to. Mm 